the section from the text that constitutes the text part of our lesson is entitled The Atonement as Defense. Now what happens actually is that Mary Lou calls me a week or two or three ahead of and says, what will the topics for the, for the sermons be? And so we quickly come up with things. Uh, pay no attention to what you read in the paper. I'm sure you've noticed that there's absolutely no connection to <laughs> what you read in the paper. Uh, the, uh, the talk this morning is supposed to be on great love relationships. And I will do my best to work that in at least for a few sentences so we can do it. But this little section brings up some fascinating points and allows, allows us to discuss several things that we've talked about in the past, several things that can be easily misunderstood and therefore possibly it would be helpful if we went over them again. Subjects that I think everyone is interested in. Let me read this first paragraph to you. You can do anything I ask. I've asked you to perform miracles and have made it clear that miracles are natural, corrective, healing, and universal. There is nothing they cannot do. But they cannot be performed in the spirit of doubt or fear. When you are afraid of anything, you are acknowledging its power to hurt you. Remember that where your heart is, there is your treasure also. You believe in what you value. If you are afraid, you will inevitably value wrongly. And by, and by endowing all thoughts with equal power, will inevitably destroy peace. That is why the Bible speaks of the peace of God which passeth understanding. This peace is totally incapable of being shaken by errors of any kind. It denies the ability of anything not of God to affect you. This is the proper use of denial. It is not used to hide anything, but to correct error. It brings all error into the light, and since error and darkness are the same, it corrects error automatically. I'll go ahead and read the second paragraph too, because that's also on denial. True denial is a powerful protective device. You can and should, you, you can and should deny any belief that error can hurt you. This kind of denial is not a concealment, but a correction. Your right mind depends on it. Denial of error is a strong defense of truth, but denial of truth results in miscreation, the projections of the ego. In the service of the right mind, the denial of error frees the mind and reestablishes the freedom of the will. When the will is really free, it cannot miscreate because it recognizes only truth.
Oh, I see third paragraphs. Also on uh, something here, I see. Uh, so I'll just read the third paragraph to that we'll be half through it, you see. <clears throat> you can defend truth as well as error. The means are easier to understand after the value of the goal is firmly established. It is a question of what it is for. Everyone defends his treasure and will do so automatically. The real questions are, what do you treasure and how much do you treasure it? Once you have learned to consider these questions and to bring them into all your actions, you will have little difficulty in clarifying the means. The means are available whenever you ask. You can, however, save time if you do not protract this step unduly. The correct focus will shorten it immeasurably. Now, those three paragraphs can be applied to any number of subjects, but the thing that came to my mind when I was reading them was my own experience as a boy. I was raised a Christian scientist. I left uh, the church at a fairly young age. But I remember well a technique that was taught by Mary Baker Eddy, referred to as affirmation and denial. So it was a very simple approach to healing. You simply deny what is not true, and you affirm what is true. And this brings about a, a mental correction that, of course, produces an outward result. It isn't the, the technique, of course, that brings about the result. It is the genuine change of mind that does so. So recently we've talked about how nothing in this world needs to be fought, especially not our body. And I suggested that whenever you become sick or depressed, that you try to be nothing else but sick and depressed. To simply listen gently to your body and ask yourself what would make it more comfortable. That you treat it like an old uh, dog or something that you've had since childhood that you simply make comfortable so its life will be easy. <clears throat> this, of course, does not of itself heal the body, but it will allow you to lift your mind from the bodily level and engage your mind in a subject that will truly delight you. And the subject of the body will not delight us. It will excite us temporarily, but it doesn't bring any deep joy. And it doesn't bring this lovely blanket of peace that we know can cover everything. But maybe we should talk a little bit about how physical healing actually takes place. <clears throat> Remembering that it doesn't matter whether we heal our bodies. Remembering that 
the ego is always conflicted, and this conflict will manifest itself in our experience in some way. So there is nothing in this world that is not ego. That's why you cannot model your life after anything in this world. We've talked about the delightful lessons that uh, kitty cats and puppy dogs and children and so forth can provide us, but it would be a mistake to take this as an absolute guide to how we are to live, especially for those people who don't like children. <laughs> and will do anything to avoid a restaurant that allows them in there. <laughs> and those people, of course, shouldn't be forced to like them. What is truly our model is that which we love. So if we love to paint, then we will look around this lovely city and even these trees that have no leaves will form patterns of beauty that will lift our spirits and allow our lives to run more smoothly. But once again, the purpose is not to have our lives run smoothly. That's just what happens. The purpose is to lift the mind from the level of conflict so that it can soar and sing and bless. That lovely song uh, suggests an imagery that I would ask you to join with me in uh, that will illustrate very well how it is that the world sings but that we're not attempting to make it sing when we lift our thought to God. So let me ask you uh, if you would like to to uh, be, get comfortable and once again if you would like to take what's in your lab out so you can be comfortable, it's all right. Anna Catherine's song had all this lovely imagery about water in it. And so, if you would, please imagine yourself in a lovely pool of pure water, sparkling absolutely crystal clear, but very, very, very deep. And you are on the bottom of this pool. Now, please give yourself whatever you need to be comfortable down there. If you need, uh, <laughs> if you want a large snorkel or, but uh, you know, whatever it is, if you want to suddenly develop gills, uh, you're just sitting there very peacefully. And notice, because it is so deep, even though. It is absolutely pure that it is quite dark. It's quite dark because it is so deep and you are at the very bottom. And so what 
do you wish to do? You wish to rise to the light. And seeing that you want to do that, you begin doing it. And so now you gently begin to rise up toward the surface. And notice what happens. As you get closer and closer to the surface, the water itself becomes luminous. It is almost as if the water itself becomes light. Closer and closer and closer. And now it seems almost like pure light. We've all had this experience as we rise up in water. And now your head breaks the surface of the water and there's only light. And that light is your natural inheritance. That is your given day. That's the way your life can be. Pure, gentle, peaceful light. Which is just another word for love. Okay, open your eyes. Now let's, let's analyze what happened there because this is a very good symbol of what goes on in healing. And it can be very confusing to people. <clears throat> they notice that as they turn their thought to God, they notice in retrospect because this doesn't interest them at the time they're turning their thought to God. But in retrospect, they see that as they turn their thought to God, this world brightens. And so they say, aha, I will make this situation that I'm in at the office or wherever it is brighten by turning my thought to God. And of course, the results are very disappointing. Because the water is not light. And that is the mistake we make. Yes, the world brightens. But the world is not the peace of God. And it's only by gently turning our attention away from the world that we experience the peace of God and notice that the world brightens along with it. And this is really the only thing there is to learn. That happiness is the light. That any time we wish to, we can rise toward it simply by turning our attention in that direction. Of course, the miracle says to be in the kingdom is merely to focus your full attention on it. The Bible says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. That's all there is to learn. That if we turn our thought to God, we are in heaven. If we turn our thought to this world, then we will see all the conflict in this world, and that will be our experience. So what then is the purpose of healing? 
Well, because we are also preoccupied with our bodies or with our finances or with whatever, we can't turn our thought to God. We are not going to turn our thought to God because this problem just holds our attention. And possibly nothing holds the attention of the mind more than physical pain and distress. So it is useful to know how healing takes place. It's quite simple. And if it is practiced in its simplicity, you will immediately feel your ego resisting the idea that you would practice it. The more complicated you make it, the more acceptable it will be to your ego. You've heard me quote A Course in Miracles and saying, this course is so simple that you don't think you'll be able to understand it. But you will find a way to make it complicated enough that you will understand it. <laughs> but it, the complication, of course, removes the actual truth. So the simpler we can make our approach, the better. Because the only rule that's operating is we get what we want. What we want is what we focus on. And what we focus on is what we have. And there's nothing more to healing than that. It can be made endlessly complicated, but the fact is that if we turn our thought to peace, then our entire experience, including our body, will be peaceful. So let's go through a very direct way of doing that. I'll ask you to close your eyes again. And take either some <coughs> physical distress that you have at the moment, or if you wish to help someone else out, if there's someone else. There's an interesting uh, study that was done on the healings at large, a survey. Large has been studied a great deal. But one of the most interesting surveys is the one that showed that the people who received healings at large were almost always praying for someone else. They were seeking someone else's healing, not their own, when they received their own. However, if there is something that's distressing you, if there's something that's locking your attention onto a subject that is not happy, if there is some physical distress, then certainly take that, because that is the place where your mind is anchored. If that is not the case, and you wish to take this opportunity to help someone else, then do that. Now, first of all, just relax deeply. If you wish to picture yourself lying somewhere relaxed on a beach or something like that, if that helps you relax and do that, it's just as true as you're sitting in a chair. One is just as true as the other.
and just see this great light of love coming and surrounding you. And pouring into you are the person that you are helping at this moment. Pouring into you like warm golden honey. Do you want to think of yourself as a sopapilla? Okay, let's get serious about happiness now. So this lovely, lovely light of God that's so familiar to you pours down and surrounds you and fills you and it fills every part of you. It fills every part of you and it extends to every thought you have ever had. And it heals every grievance and fear you've ever had because it extends to every one of them. Every thought you have ever thought in every part of your body. And it circles around you and it caresses every part of your body. The parts that you may be ashamed of or fearful of. This is God's love. Feel your lightness and your happiness. And now turn your thought to this person who is ill or to your own body that is distressed in any way and see it surrounded by this same light, caressed and filled to brim brimming with this, this celestial splendor. And see the body change to an image that is totally relaxed and completely happy. See the forehead relax, the eyebrows relax. See the person smile. See how free they are. You cannot see their body any other way if you first surround it with this deep, beautiful love of God. And if you fill it, it will look that way to you. And notice that you like doing this. That's the most important thing. Okay. Open your eyes now. That's really all there is to healing. It's very similar to the methods used in 
mnemonics, memory techniques. It's almost the same thing. Let's say you want to remember somebody's name. Their name was Greenfield. You want to associate their name and their face. So what would you do in mnemonics? Well, you, you would uh, see them with a green face. <laughs> standing in a field. What would you do if you were to go to the office and the first thing that you had to remember was to call to see if Connie's has a fresh turkey, not the frozen kind, but the fresh kind. So important that we get those things. What would you do if that's the first thing that you were to do when you got to the office? Well, in mnemonics, you might place the number one mentally on top of the telephone before you ever got to the office. So that when you open the office door and you look around the room, you suddenly see this one on top of the phone and you know that's the first thing you're to do. That's all there is to healing. It's simply changing the mental image. Because believe it or not, and our ego does not believe it, the body is simply a mental image. Change the image and the body changes. Now, of course, the same thing can be done with any aspect of our life. If you do not have enough money, and if this is preoccupying your attention, and you can't turn to God, and you can't feel any peace because you're so caught up in the creditors and, and the embarrassing phone calls and the letters and all this stuff, exactly the same principle applies. If you wish, if you would like to, you can see yourself with money, now, why would anyone do that? So that they can release their mind from this grab. From this clutching. That has to be done. That's why we talked about the fact that you just take your body and whatever it whatever it's wants, you simply give it. You don't indulge it. You just give it what it seems to be needing at the moment so that it will be at peace. Well, the same thing's true of our life. If alcohol has become a problem, then simply do whatever you need to do to bring your life to peace so that you can turn your thought to God. And if entering a support group like AA would be of help to you, enter it instantly. Just as instead of sitting there and battling a headache, just if you think that uh, a massage from your friend so-and-so or an aspirin or whatever it is you think or would help, do it instantly. Agree with thine adversary, Jesus is quoted as having said in the New Testament, quickly. Resist not even the evil one, King James Version has him say. 
Why? Because it doesn't matter. Because we don't have to lock horns with anything in this world. And the very simple fact is that what we put in our mind is what is manifested in our experience. Now, if you are tempted to misuse that, to, to gain advantages over other people and make yourself wealthy and beautiful and so forth, I have a very good friend who uh, regresses people, back, uh, women back to puberty, pre-puberty, takes them through puberty, and their breasts grow. He's one of a number of hypnotists that are doing this. This is, you know, that's it's okay. If someone is absolutely preoccupied with, with that, you know, then that's fine. doesn't make any difference. So you just look at your life and you see that if there is something in your life that is calling out to you so strongly that you can't think about anything else, then take care of it quickly and easily and peacefully. But it is so that your mind can soar. Otherwise, we just get caught in an endless endeavor to get what we think are all the good things of life, which no one can agree on what they are, but each of us think we know absolutely what they are. And so you do see people uh, making image books, which are perfectly good. As a matter of fact, uh, the man is primarily responsible for that concept, used it when he was uh, on the Bowery and had such a low self-image of himself that he couldn't turn his thought to God. And so he made this image book in which he cut out pictures from magazines and so forth and, and it would go over and over to lift his self-concept. But his life is devoted to God. That's where it didn't end there. It didn't stop at that level. He, he, he raised his, his self-image so that he wouldn't be preoccupied with it. And so it is, in fact, true that you can cut out pictures of, of uh, Cadillac Seville's or whatever else you want, a certain uh, stole, uh, whatever it is, and you can look at this over and over, and yes, it will appear in your life. And, and people can become very fascinated with that process. It doesn't mean anything. All you're going to find is that uh, the Cadillac Seville makes a great deal of noise because it's a uh, diesel, and, and uh, when you take it in, you've got to, you know, I don't have one, but I know someone who does, and they just, it's parked. They can't drive it. Because <laughs> you have to worry about corridors opening and denting it, and, and all the noise it makes, and, and people think, well, how, how could someone this rich allow their engine to get in that shape <laughs> not realizing it's a diesel and it just sounds that way so one of the processes that we are indeed going through is that we are all getting the things that we want just notice that You're, you, you are getting the things that you thought were really important and they come to you in their own time and so forth but merely to show you that there wasn't anything there but if you're preoccupied with it 
go ahead and get it, but then notice that it doesn't do anything, that only the peace of God can help you. Now let me give you a little imagery that you can use when you get to the point where you realize that this thing isn't doing anything for you. And because what happens is that when we realize that a particular idol isn't going to give us what we want, then we get scared of it. And we make the same mistake in another form. And that's not necessary. That's just another delaying tactic of the ego. So let's take one that's very common. And that is um, sexual objects. And if that's uh, not in any way your idol, you might just pick whatever you think it is. Uh, fine things in the home or um, uh, an ability to be humorous at a party or whatever it is that you think's might, might, you think's important in this world. Anything. But I'll just deal with uh, this charge that we put on bodies in a sexual sense. So let's say that you are an individual who has uh, had this and uh, and you would like to walk around and you'd like to see all people as the children of God, but suddenly there's this body. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, there you are standing at, in line at Furs and you can't even think about whether you want the corned beef hash or the, or the baked fish because this body is moving ahead of you in line, you see. And you say, now I'm, I'm, I think I'm ready now to just gently walk past that. So you've gotten the point. But you say, this isn't bringing me any happiness. Uh, my longing for a spouse or my longing for a sexual partner or however it, however it manifests itself. But this body that we've got to have, we've got to have this body because it's so famous. Here's this famous body in line. We've got to be, we've got to be friends with it. So how, are we going to, how are we going to get to know this person? How are we going to uh, make them like us? And everything, because it would it would add so much to our lives to have this famous person as our friend. So it doesn't matter in what way the body is attractive, attractive to you. So please close your eyes, and I'll lead you through a little imagery. So here you are at Furs, or the happy carrot, or wherever you want to be. <laughs> and you you see this body that you want. Now just please remember that situation. Please see a body that you want. And as I say, this can be used with anything. It can be used with riches or eminence within the world or anything else that may be attracting your attention. But we're just going to use this as the example. First of all, look at the body, which is seems like a good spouse or a good lay or a good friend or a good something. Just look at it now and say to yourself as you look at it.
This is not the sole container of the peace of God. Just say that to yourself. This is not the only place where God's love can be found. Just look at the body and see that as a truth as best you can. Now, mentally look away from the body and say the same thing to yourself. And now look back at the body and take a closer look at it this time. Now, you're going to take an honest look at this particular body because perhaps the first time you looked at it, it was a fantasy. You see, it was a fantasy mate, companion, sexual object, whatever it may have been. Now see that this is just a body. See it in the context of all other bodies. Now what will happen is you will see its faults. And that's all right. Don't worry about seeing its faults. That just simply means that you're seeing it in the context of all other bodies. Notice that it has certain things you do not want. Quite a few that you would change about it. He's got big bucks, but he's awfully short. Whatever it is. Doesn't matter. Just just look at it. See, now you're seeing the faults, whatever. Now look away from the body and say to yourself, the peace of God surrounds me. It is everywhere. There is no limit to its accessibility. <coughs> okay. No commands. I'll read the rest of the lesson. The atonement is the only defense that cannot be used destructively because it is not a device you made. The atonement principle was in effect long before the atonement began. The principle was love. And the atonement was an act of love. Acts were not necessary before the separation because belief in space and time did not exist. It was only after the separation that the atonement and the conditions necessary for its fulfillment were planned. Then, a defense so splendid was needed that it could not be misused, although it could be refused. Refusal could not, however, turn it into a weapon of attack which is the inherent characteristic of other defenses. The atonement thus becomes the only defense that is not a two-edged sword. 
it can only heal. The atonement was built into the space-time belief to set a limit on the need for the belief itself and ultimately to make learning complete. The atonement is the final lesson. Learning itself, like the classrooms in which it occurs, is temporary. The ability to learn has no value when change is no longer necessary. The eternally creative have nothing to learn. You can learn to improve your perceptions and can become a better and better learner. This will bring you into closer and closer accord with the sonship, like rising in the water, like that imagery. But the sonship itself is a perfect creation and perfection is not a matter of degree. Only while there is a belief in differences is learning meaningful. Evolution is a process in which you seem to proceed from one degree to the next. You correct your previous missteps by stepping forward. Never, incidentally, by looking backward and analyzing what mistake you made. This process is actually incomprehensible in temporal terms because you return as you go forward. The atonement is the device by which you can free yourself from the past as you go ahead. It undoes your past errors, thus making it unnecessary for you to keep retracing your steps without advancing to your return. In this sense, the atonement saves time, but like the miracle it serves, does not abolish it. As long as there is need for atonement, there is need for time. But the atonement is a completed plan and has a unique relationship to time. Until the atonement is complete, its various phases will proceed in time, but the whole atonement stands at time's end. At that point, the bridge of return has been built. The atonement is a total commitment. You may still think this is associated with loss, a mistake all the separated sons of God make in one way or another. It is hard to believe a defense that cannot attack is the best defense. This is what is meant by the meek shall inherit the earth. They will literally take it over because of their strength. A two-way defense is inherently weak precisely because it has two edges and can be turned against you very unexpectedly. This possibility cannot be controlled except by miracles. Simply means expressions of love. The miracle turns the defense of atonement to your real protection, and as you become more and more secure, you assume your natural talent of protecting others, knowing yourself as both a brother and a son. So it seems as if we rise up in this, this pool of pure water, pure because there's nothing there, pure because this body cannot hurt you, pure because this world does not in fact judge you. The world 
in a sense, has already forgiven you. It's just that we haven't yet forgiven the world. Your friend's body has already forgiven you. It's just that I have not forgiven my friend's body. So the body is absolutely harmless. It is just a teaching device. It's just like one of those little things that they use at the schools in which you, you punch in uh, the question and it gives you the answer. You don't need to take a sledgehammer to it if you make a mistake. It isn't the machine's fault. So we don't need to loathe our bodies because they become sick or feeble with age or because they're not attractive enough or whatever. But we, we must realize that if we identify with the body, we're going to be unhappy sooner or later because all the things that it had for us in the beginning, it loses as time goes on. So its resources to make us happy are diminished. And if that's what we think we are, we're nothing but this body, we will inevitably be sad. And so this rising up process is simply a matter of another kind of identification in which we realize that there is something else going on within our being beside just the deterioration of this body and the loss of our friends and opportunities and so forth and all the things the body does. That there, that there is more to us than that. And perhaps we see that it's... Uh, it's honesty. And that by being honest or giving honesty to other people or dealing honestly with our children and our spouse and so forth, that we recognize that we are honesty. We are the, this love and expression of the truth. This real recognition that the truth is my friend. Lies are not my friend. That's all there is to it. They just aren't my friend, but truth is my friend. And so we say, ah, I'm more than just a body. I'm honest. I want to be honest. I love being honest. People are coming to me because I'm honest. People are relaxed because I'm honest. People know they'll get a straight answer. So we're honest. Ah, and we're gentle. And we give gentleness away and we teach ourselves that it must be inside of us because we're giving it away. And gentleness brings rest. And gentleness brings peace to our day. And it has nothing to do with the body. A crippled old dog can give us abundant gentleness. What does it have to do with the body? Oh, I'm something more than a body. And then we rise a little bit more. And then comes happiness. And as we've said before, this is the term that the ego is deeply suspicious of. Its belief is that if we allow ourselves just a little happiness, 
the whole world will come crashing down on us. Because our life is actually held together by this anxiety and this constant moiling over of everything that's going to happen and analyzing it and planning against it and so forth. This tension about the future. And we better not allow ourselves a moment's rest because all these horrible goblins will, will get us if we do that. If, if we just relax. Oh, I can't relax. I can't uh, just lie down on the, on the rug and look up at the figures. <laughs> what about, what about, what about, what about? If I do that, there are all these things I've got to do. Did you know that you could get hit over the head by a stabilized adobe <laughs> and be in a coma for three months and you would get out of the hospital and you would wonder why everything was just the way it was when you hadn't done anything for three months. <laughs> <laughs> now this letting go this recognition that we need do nothing is of course not like the the west coast uh, the, our beloved west coast <laughs> since these tapes uh, will be going to the west coast <laughs> Uh, the, the beloved West Coast concept of being laid back. Now, the, being laid back is an affectation, you see. So this is a constraint on the body. This is another form of pre preoccupation with the body. Now I will constrain myself and be laid back. That, that's not doing nothing. Doing nothing is not worrying about what your body does. You just let your body do whatever it does. It, it, you just, it goes about the day and it watches dishes or it does whatever it calls, whatever it does. But it's at peace you, you, because you, your, your life has more grandeur than the, than, the, the, than the petty little things that it's caught up in. And so getting back to the, uh, the unfrozen turkey at Connie's, <laughs> now you're calling Connie's, do you see, to check if they have the unfrozen turkeys. And you think that's your purpose. Where is there an opportunity for grandeur if you think your purpose is to check if they have any unfrozen turkeys? What, where is the possibility of grandeur? If you go into the filling station and you ask the person very hesitantly, would you please wipe my windshield? And you think that's the purpose of the encounter. Where is the possibility of the grandeur? If we look at our day and we look at all these slices of events that take place, each one seems to contain its own purpose. Now my purpose is to go into the store and find such and such. Now my purpose is to call so and so to see if such and such has happened. Now my purpose is to uh, 
mop the floor because people are coming over and you know, I don't want them to see the floor like it is. Where is the possibility of grandeur in that? There is none. And so we just simply mop the floor and we, and we make the call to Connie's, but we don't deceive ourselves into thinking that that's the purpose of the call. The purpose is this lovely exchange that's potential in the conversation. So we simply realize that the event is never about what it seems to be about. People are never talking about what they think they're talking about. Because they always think they're talking about something that happened in the past or something that happened in the future or what so-and-so did or what are we going to do about this and that has nothing to do with what is actually taking place. So now this person stands before you and says, uh, I am uh, the teacher in, uh, in, uh, in Little Arthur's uh, third grade and I want you to know that he is doing da 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 and uh, so forth. Now you're listening to this. Now what is the purpose of the conversation? It has nothing to do with what little author is doing in the, uh, in the third grade. The fact that he is, he is making spit curls out of, the, out of the little girl's hair, you see, and she doesn't want spit curls. And it has nothing to do with that. And if you think that it has anything to do with that, then you, you will, there will be no rising up to the light. What does it have to do? It has to do with your encounter with this person and your opportunity to bring them rest and peace. So it doesn't make any difference what you say. Anything. Say anything <laughs> to her about it. It doesn't matter whether Connie's is, is sold out of the turkeys. It doesn't matter whether the guy washes the, the uh, windshield. None of that matters because all that matters is this rising up to the light. And so you simply say whatever you say. It doesn't matter whether people are gossiping. So just say whatever you say so that the you can continue this rising up to the light. So there can be peace in the situation. Which brings us to the topic of the... <laughs> Of the sermon. <laughs> so you thought I'd forgotten about that, didn't you? Great love relationships. So this rising up. See how I made the transition there? <clears throat> begins where you are. So picture yourself as the sun. Close your eyes just for a minute. You're the sun. And everyone you shine on those people are the people you think about and the people you have physical contact with. So if you were the sun and the people you were shining on were the people you thought about as you went through the day and the people you had physical contact with as you went through the day, who would be the most suntanned? <laughs> okay, you can open your eyes. All right, now this, you see, there's nothing, there's nothing mystical about this. You just take the people that you think about most and you have most contact with. This is your first circle. 
because the way, seemingly paradoxically, that we rise from this world, this bloodbath, is by loving this world. That seems a paradox because we're told that this world is but an illusion. But love is the bringing of light into the illusion. It's the bringing of light into the mind, and therefore it goes throughout the world. And the world actually becomes a very nice place to live in. And God declares, nice day. And we suddenly, all of our friends are okay. We, don't, we, can't, we wondered why we were having so much trouble with all of our friends. And it's okay now. But this begins at a point, this begins where you are. And that's why the development of a great love relationship can be so helpful. As a matter of fact, I think it's absolutely essential at a certain point. When you, you, have to, when you reach a certain point, you must form this bond of love with someone around you or some people around you. And you must perfect this. So all the emphasis about special relationships in A Course in Miracles is put there only so that we can develop holy relationships, which is the other term used in A Course in Miracles. So it's not that we concentrate on not having special relationships. We simply notice that special relationships aren't holy, that they aren't free, that they aren't great loves, that they're petty loves. And this is why the ego does not understand this business of identifying with our happiness. Because it really does believe that what we have is what we take from others. And that our thanks and our gratitude is based on the fact that there are a lot of people more miserable than we are. And if we'll just keep looking around and finding people more miserable than we are, that somehow we'll have a sense of gratitude about life. So the whole object is simply to have less misery, to have an advantage. And our prayers are simply an asking for favors. Asking for favors, not asking for a universal blessing, but for a small advantage. Now, God comes along and says, don't you realize there are no advantages in this world? Go ahead, trade anything you want to. It makes no difference. This is not where your happiness lies. So let me suggest to you another procedure. Devote yourself to the happiness of those around you. And begin with the people who are most suntanned. <laughs> Just start there. Say to yourself, crazy as it seems, I will only be happy to the degree I make them happy. And then make them happy. Now we all know how to do that with the people around us. We know how to make them happy. Just do what it is that will make them happy. But remember that the greatest gift and possibly the only gift that you actually give is the silent blessing. And it is indeed all right to enter their mind and plead for their happiness.
and their strength and their health. This is not this is not contrary to divine ethics to do this. So in the silence of your heart, talk to them. Don't criticize them, but lift them. Lift them. Bless them. Tell them how much you love them. Because sometimes it doesn't appear as if there is anything we can do on an external level. But there's a real question as to whether we're ever doing anything on an external level. It's quite possible that the only thing we are doing, even when we're doing something externally, is we're either giving them a blessing or we're filled with anxiety and withholding a blessing. So as I have said before, struggle to make them happy. Put their happiness before your happiness. Take the people who are most suntanned and struggle to make them happy. Struggle to bring them peace. Treat them as, as precious jewels. Wonderful heirlooms. So precious. So cherished. Not the clutching cherish kind of cherishing, but the love kind of cherishing. 